Let's look at Matthew 2 this morning, verses 13 through 23. Text is in the bulletin uh, there on the next page, and there's also some Bibles available in the back if you need one of those. Um, So uh, for the last several weeks, the world has been uh, watching Afghanistan uh, as, uh, you know, U.S. forces withdrew and the Taliban uh, rapidly swept in and seized control of the country there. Uh, Events like this, uh, like we've seen in Afghanistan over several several weeks here, uh, cause people to flee their homes, cause people to flee their countries. Right. People are running away from violence. People are running away from oppression, oppression, oppressive governments or a big conflict in their countries, in their homelands. Uh, Because of a tumultuous few decades, there are there already have been lots of Afghan um, refugees. There are currently uh, 2.6 million registered Afghan refugees uh, around the world living in other countries. And there are another three and a half million Afghans who are internally displaced uh, Afghans who have been forced from their homes, but they remain in Afghanistan, right? So that's, that's a lot. That's, uh, you do the math, it's over 6 million, right? That's about 15% of the total Afghan population <laughs> that are refugees. 15% uh, on the run. So in the world right now, it's estimated that uh, there are about 80 million refugees total. That's an estimate. Who knows? Uh, really, we're not talking about, you know, sort of libertarians who are moving to Idaho in order to protect their freedoms and uh, the rights to bear arms or whatever, uh, right? We're not, that's not a political refugee the way we're thinking about it. These are people who are afraid to stay in their home country uh, who would probably die if they didn't leave. 80 million people around the world. If you took all those 80 million people and made them into their own country, <clears throat> then it would be the 20th largest country in the world by uh, population, right behind Germany. Um, so 80 million people uh, who have left behind most of their wealth, most of their possessions, most of their friends and family. 80 million people who have left behind familiar places and languages and customs that are familiar to them. 80 million people who risk all kinds of unknowns and uh, dangers in the wider world. Who uh, risk being separated for, forever from their loved ones just to stay alive. They risk being separated forever from the people that they love. These are powerless people who must live at the mercy of others. And there was a time when the king of the world was one of them. Uh, Jesus was a helpless child in a Middle Eastern refugee family. That's what we see in our passage this morning. He had come to deliver his people from their sins, but first he needed to be delivered. Uh, So let's look at that. Let's uh, talk about that this morning. Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, help us to know you as we come to know your son, Jesus, as we read this word about him. We pray for your spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when they, uh, the wise men who had come to visit Jesus bearing their gifts, when they had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, uh, some call them the Holy Family, they are political refugees, uh, which happens all too often in this world, in a world like this, but the particular circumstances here are fairly unique, because this child, unlike any other child, uh, this child, Jesus, has been born the king of the Jews. In fact, he's the son of God. And he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the whole world. And the current ruler in Judea views him as the competition to be wiped out. Right? So Herod the king, uh, sometimes known as Herod the Great, he ruled over Judea uh, under Roman occupation. His dad had been friends with Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, uh, and Herod himself was a successful politician, so he was able to maneuver himself into the kingship here and, uh, and able to maintain his power under the power of Rome. Right? And all it took was, you know, just murdering a few people. Uh, in fact, to defend his throne, he killed his favorite wife and he killed three of his own sons in order to maintain his power. Uh, maybe you'd, you'd expect a king to raise his sons as beloved princes that he was proud of and, uh, and plan to give them his kingdom as their inheritance, but the idea that they might take his power away from him, the idea that someday he would die and lose all his power, was so troubling to Herod that he killed his sons so that that couldn't happen. So clearly his thirst for power had driven him mad. And this is insanity. Right, uh, Stanley Hauerwas is a commentator on this book of uh, Matthew's Gospel. He says simply, he says, power is never secure. Power is never secure. Talking about the, the worldly violent kind of power that Herod uh, wielded. He wanted power badly. He was super insecure about it. Um, he probably would kill you if you called him insecure about it. Uh, when someone is so power mad that he kills his own sons... It doesn't surprise you that he would go after other children if he viewed them as a threat to his power. Right? So he saw Jesus as a threat to his power, and he completely disregarded God's word. He's supposed to be the king of the Jews. He's the king of Judea in Jerusalem, in the city of God's people. He's supposed to pay attention to God's word, but he completely disregarded God's word in his response to what he perceived to be this threat in the person of Jesus. 
He rejected God's prophecies concerning the true king of Israel. Jesus was the true king. He's the Messiah. Herod rejected that, and he, uh, he rejected God's law, which very simply forbids murder. And he sent to have the baby boys of Bethlehem slaughtered. So scholars estimate that uh, the population of Bethlehem and maybe the surrounding region was probably no more than a thousand people. Uh, so, you know, slaughtering all the male children under two, it's not that big of a deal in a, in a city like that. There's probably no more than a couple dozen male children. Look, it doesn't minimize the horrific nature of Herod's order. I don't, I don't even want to spend time imagining it. It's so terrible. But this really wouldn't have made the headlines in, in the Roman Empire. It wouldn't have been news. Not like news today where you're watching in Afghanistan. It, this is just the kind of thing rulers do to get power. This is the kind of thing rulers do to keep power. It's no big deal. They crush the powerless. Maybe we've gotten away from this kind of thing in Western civilization because of the influence of the gospel, the influence of Christianity and the church over the last 2,000 years. This kind of thing has become foreign to us, but, but this is how power works apart from Jesus. This is how it works. It still works this way apart from Jesus. There's still plenty of places in the world where you can see this kind of power on display. Really, I mean, this is how power works even in countries like ours, uh, just maybe in more subtle ways, right? Or maybe we've got more social constraints. But if you want to rise to power, you take it if you can. You take the power if you can. And if you have to make others miserable to get there, oh well. And it works. Herods get what they want. It works. Herods get what they want. And it's usually only bigger Herods like Caesar that can stop them. Violent power works. Herod uses violent power against the competition, uh, in this case against Jesus. And in a sense, it worked for him. He got what he wanted. uh, And even if Jesus wasn't killed, he was driven away so that Herod could live out the rest of his days without this threat to his power. But God uh, protected his son. God protected his son from Herod. He saved him from infanticide uh, because he had a plan for his son's life. And that plan was not so that Jesus would grow up and marshal an army to destroy all the Herods of this world. To be the biggest Herod there ever was. That plan was to get his son to the cross in order to wield a power that is greater than violent power. The power of divine love, self-sacrificial love. So God appeared to Joseph in a series of three dreams, which is unique. You can see that God is working in a special way in this uh, this story here. Uh, He calls to mind uh, with this, you know, appearing to Joseph in dreams or sending an angel into his dreams calls to mind Joseph, who is the son of Jacob, right? At the end of the book of Genesis, uh, he was an interpreter of dreams. He arranged for God's people to find refuge in Egypt uh, during a famine. So here God tells Joseph to, in this dream, he says, take Jesus and his mother, take Mary, and run. Become refugees. Go to Egypt where they can be safe until this whole thing with Herod blows over. And there are uh, also parallels here with... um, with Moses in the book of Exodus, the early chapters of the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel had been in Egypt, they had been refugees in Egypt, and they had found favor in Egypt, but over the centuries, um, they had found themselves living under Egyptian oppression, right? Egypt is called the house of slavery. 
So their population was growing rapidly, which Pharaoh in Egypt had viewed as a threat to his power, to his control in the country. So Pharaoh had ordered the slaughter of all Israelite babies at birth. Pharaoh was an evil tyrant using violent power to crush a perceived threat. He's just a Herod. But Moses, Moses back then in the book of Exodus, he was delivered from death as an infant. He was saved. And eventually he would lead God's people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Jesus was delivered as an infant, but he didn't have to be delivered from the tyrannical king of Egypt. He had to be delivered from the tyrannical king of Israel. It was safer for him in Egypt, actually, than it was in the land of God's own people. And that's some sad irony right there, because Jesus, I mean, he was safer in the land that had meant slavery and enmity for centuries to his people than he was in the land of his own people, the chosen people, the people of God, Israel. In his refugee status, um, Jesus embodies the true people of God. As a refugee, Jesus embodies the true people of God. As it says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So this is a reference to God delivering Israel, his people, out of Egypt. But God calls that people, that, that large body of people, that corporate people, he calls them my son, singular. So that's something that we see several times in the Old Testament where God refers to his people as if they were one, as if they were an individual. Or sometimes he refers to an individual as if he represented all the people. Right? So God's setting the stage for us in uh, prophecies like that to think in terms of a Savior whose life would count for the many, uh, who would take the identity of the many upon himself, a representative, a champion, one, one man to be the true people of Israel, right? So the English, uh, the ESV study Bible says that Matthew explains how Jesus's personal history repeats certain aspects of Israel's national history. And so when you read the story of Jesus, it's like you're reading the story of Israel all over again, but done the right way. Jesus uh, the fancy theological term for this is he re- recapitulated the people of God himself, in himself, right? He, he reheaded the people of God in himself. His life story reflects the life story of Israel as a nation. He has redone that story, the story of that people, and he has perfected the story of the people of God in his own life. Right? So he is the greater Moses. He's doing Moses all over again to a greater degree. He's the true Israel. He's God's son. He's the true king. Jesus, not Herod, even though Herod had violent power in Judea. The infant on the run with his refugee family was the true king, not the mad tyrant hunting him. Jesus needed to be delivered. And God delivered him. So Jesus knew what it was like to pray, uh, like what Jack prayed, uh, uh, read in our uh, Old Testament reading, Psalm 138. Jesus knew what it was like to pray. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. 
So we tend to think of Jesus as he's the one doing the saving, right? We talk about Jesus as our savior. He's the one that comes and delivers us. But here he's the one who needs to be saved. Here he's the one that needs to be delivered by God. The son of God came into the world in our place, in the very place of someone who needed to be delivered from violent power. Jesus needed to be delivered from Herod. And again, not just because he needed to live long enough to have his chance at violent power. Jesus needed to be delivered from violent power because that's a reality for God's true people. God's true people need to be delivered from violent power. And Jesus represents us in this. People who don't have this world's version of power live at the mercy of others. And the king of the world was one of them. The son of God made himself powerless before Herod and eventually would make himself powerless, speaking in terms of worldly violent power. He would make himself powerless before Pontius Pilate. He became powerless even to death so that God would deliver him through his resurrection. God saved Jesus. When God raised him from the dead, God was saving his son from death. He didn't prevent Jesus' death, but he saved him from the power of death after his death so that we could all be delivered from the power of death through the resurrection of Jesus. And this demonstrates the true power of God, that he would become powerless in the world's eyes in order to save and love the powerless. There's never been any threat to God's power. There never can be, there never will be a threat, not any real threat to God's power. Jesus was never insecure about his power, not like Herod was insecure. Because Jesus' power was about entrusting himself to his father. His power was about love, and no one could stop him from that. God doesn't necessarily save us from the powerful, from evil tyrants who are using violent power like Herod. He doesn't save us. Look, the families in Bethlehem, they lost their babies. And Christians are on the run in the world just like many other refugees, right alongside them. The power of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus might not save us when tyrants come after us. But his power saves us from the true power that's behind their violence, which is the power of fear and the power of death. Because when God saves Jesus from Herod, and especially when God saves Jesus from death in his resurrection, God is delivering our deliverer because he wants us to, to be with him. He wants us to live with him forever. We have a good and gracious king. We have a king of deliverance who knows himself in his own person what it means to be saved, who is willing to meet his own death for our salvation, who was not abandoned to the grave, and he will not abandon his people to the grave. Jesus, he delivers us from this living death, from a life of not knowing God, a life of being separated from God. That's what he saves us from. He takes the dead and he makes us alive spiritually to God. So through the Holy Spirit, he makes us alive to God. And he will deliver us from death once and for all in the great resurrection of the dead. We know that's true because Jesus has been set forth as our representative. Jesus has rewritten the story of God's people in his own story so that all those who trust in him can know as it goes for him, so also it goes for us. 
There is another representative of the people in this story, another representative, another king in this story. Herod represents people apart from Christ. Herod represents someone who has arrived in worldly terms, right? He's arrived. He is, he's gotten what he wants, and he can do whatever it takes to keep what he, what he wants. Herod is the personification of those who stand against Jesus. And he's dead. Joseph and Mary and Jesus didn't even have to wait long for that to happen so that they could come back into Israel. Herod died. And that was the end of his story. That's the final word about that king. So which king seems better to you? The one who rules through fear and violence? Or the one who became a refugee from kings like that? Is it the one who merely died in the end? End of story? Or the one who died and who was raised and who promises new life forever to his people? So when you put Jesus uh, up against someone like Herod the Great, you know, Herod the Great, he's called that by everybody in the world. Uh, Jesus certainly might seem like a nobody. That's not a surprise. God knows that. God planned for that. Um, When the family goes back, they avoid returning to Bethlehem. Uh, because Herod's son, Archelaus, uh, ruled in that district now. Archelaus uh, began his reign by massacring 3,000 Passover celebrants, like father, like son, right? So there will always be mad tyrants wielding violent power in the world. So they didn't want to go there, so they resettled up north in some obscure place, right, called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he might be called a Nazarene. So, um, you know, there's no specific prophecy about the Messiah in Nazareth in the Old Testament. Uh, scholars sometimes scratch their heads like, what is Matthew talking about here? In fact, Nazareth isn't, isn't even mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not even mentioned in the Bible before Jesus comes on the scene. In fact, I think Nazareth wasn't even established until after all the Old Testament Scriptures had been written. <clears throat> the point Matthew is making uh, is not that... Um, the Holy Scriptures prophesied that there's this one place called Nazareth. Here it is. You can get to it by its geographical coordinates, and Jesus is going to come from there. Um, the point Matthew is making is that Jesus would be a nobody, and that he's going to come from Nowheresville. Because Nazareth, Nazareth is Nowheresville. Right? That is prophesied explicitly in the Hebrew Scriptures. When Jesus came, people would not recognize him. He'd be despised, right? He wasn't this big, important guy from a big, important place. Not like Herod the Great. He's a nobody compared to him. He comes from nowhere. He's the opposite of Herod the Great. He was invisible. Jesus was invisible. He was powerless. He was homeless a lot of time. He was despised by the people who made a lot, made much of power. If that's true about God's king, then worldly power is not the answer to your troubles. I don't care what your troubles are. Worldly power is not the answer to them. Empowerment's not the answer. The power of Jesus, which is the power of divine love, that's true power and it lasts forever, even beyond death. So which kind of king do you want? The king who grabs for victory and fame and power and renown and glory in this life? Or do you want the unrecognized, obscure king from Nazareth who loves people, who lays down his life, and he takes it up 
again for them. Do you want the king of destruction or do you want the king of deliverance? We live in a brutal world. It's a nightmarish world where a refugee might be forced to flee for his life, uh, where there's no guarantee that uh, he won't be crushed by tyrants. Nobody can guarantee that. Being a Christian means you have a Lord who can relate to that. You have a Lord who grants us the most important salvation of all. Jesus is never going to crush you. He crushed death itself for you in his own death and resurrection. He's never going to crush you. And whatever nightmares this world might hold for his people, one day all the Herods of the world will die. And their story will end. And we will be at home with Jesus in paradise forever. Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, chapter 31, says, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. Because God says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. That's not a daydream. That's the truth of Christ's resurrection made ours by God's grace. Um, Sadly, that gospel seems uh, to tend to make tyrants angry. This gospel just makes them angrier. Because when we say we have no use for worldly violent power, when we condemn worldly violent power as useless, we want to have nothing to do with it. When we say our king, the one true king of the world, to whom they must bow in the world to come, uh, has no use for worldly violent power. When we say that, it, it leads to gnashing of teeth because it undermines what's most precious to Herod's. When we say... We believe in a Savior who died, a Savior who hung on a cross and died, which is ridiculous in the world's eyes. When we say that, and when we say we believe in his resurrection, then we say we're not afraid of violent power, even if it leads to death, because we have a a Savior who died and was, was raised. It topples the foundation that tyrants have built their lives on. It topples the power that they have, the power of fear and death. The gospel of Jesus, the refugee, That is a threat. It's even a political threat to those who love worldly power and its tools. So the gospel, it is a warning to Herod's. You're going to die. And then what becomes of all your worldly power? Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So don't be a fool, Herod. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is better than your death. Entrust yourself to the true king of deliverance. True life, eternal life, is about your relationship with this king, with Jesus. And that relationship... um, Jesus says uh, that that relationship with Jesus plays itself out in your relationship with other people. So, toward the end of Matthew's gospel here in uh, chapter 25, Matthew records Jesus talking about the final judgment when he's going to return to judge all the living and the dead. And Jesus says some pretty incredible stuff there. I'll read some of it in Matthew 25, uh, uh, starting verse 34. Then the king will say, Jesus is talking about himself as the king, the ruler, uh, the judge. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So in the same way we can hear Jesus say, that when I was a refugee, which he really was, when I was a refugee, you gave me shelter. You were kind to me. You came alongside and helped me. You were hospitable and welcoming to me. You helped pick me up. When did we see Jesus, a refugee, and do all these things? Truly, as we saw the least of these refugees, who are his brothers. Because he's made himself a refugee. He's made himself a brother of refugees, a refugee from violent power. We see refugees all around us. Do we really see them? Do we understand their sufferings and their struggles in this world? Do we see ourselves in them? Do we see Jesus in them? Because if we do, we're blessed by the Father and we inherit his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to know ourselves as refugees in this world and as brothers to refugees in this world, as brothers and sisters of Christ, who is a refugee in this world. We all need to be delivered from the most violent powers, the, the, the power of the devil, the power of death, the power of fear. So we pray that you would help us to see in Jesus the kind of deliverance that we need, which can be hard for us to recognize. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the king of our deliverance and to bend the knee to him and to be thankful for him. We pray that you would help us to exercise the power like his, the power of love instead of worldly power in this life. We pray that you'd help us to find fellowship in the sufferings of Christ so that we might also know him in the power of his resurrection. We need all kinds of help. We need you to save us, even as you've saved your son, Jesus, for eternal life with you. So we ask for your help. We ask for your salvation. We ask for your deliverance in his name. Amen.